Right, and now a reading from the book of Mark, chapter 7, from the Inclusive Version Bible. The Pharisees and some of the religious scholars who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. They had noticed that some of his disciples were eating with unclean hands, that is, without ritually washing them. For the Pharisees and Jewish people in general follow the tradition of their ancestors and never eat without washing their arms as far as the elbow. Moreover, they never eat anything from the market without first sprinkling it. There are many other traditions which have been handed down to them, such as the washing of cups and pots and dishes. So these Pharisees and religious scholars asked Jesus, why do your disciples not respect the tradition of our ancestors, but eat their food with unclean hands? Jesus answered, how accurately Isaiah prophesied about you hypocrites when he wrote, these people honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. The worship they offer me is worthless. The doctrines they teach are only human precepts. You disregard God's commandments and cling to human traditions. Jesus summoned the crowd again and said to them, listen to me, all of you, and try to understand. Nothing that enters us from the outside makes us impure. It is what comes out of us that makes us impure. For it is from within, from our hearts, that evil intentions emerge. Promiscuity, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, obscenity, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evils come from within and make us impure. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Okay, going to try to share a screen here. Hopefully you all can see that. So good morning, everyone. Um, it's very good to be with you, even in this virtual way. I'm going to open with a word of prayer. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So in true Bruce fashion, uh, I have included a, um, a question for you to be pondering. You can think about it, or if you want, you can chat about it during the sermon. Um, so again, thanks for being here. Some of you know that I'm a professor at Santa Clara University in the Department of Religious Studies. And perhaps fewer of you know that I teach not simply theology, but rather ethics. So uh, sometimes theologians and ethicists can get into a bit of a friendly competition. So first, let me define my terms. If theology is faith-seeking understanding, ethics is more like faith-seeking action. So to get into the friendly competition zone, a few analogies. First, theology is to ethics as a YouTube how-to video about how to tie a fishing knot is to real live fly fishing. Or second, theology is to ethics as 
I fly, I've never done that, but I know some of you have, as I fly is to actual skydiving from a plane at several thousand feet. Or my personal favorite, theology is to ethics as the driving simulator, remember those, I'm really dating myself now, as a driving simulator is to behind the wheel training. It never goes quite in real life like it did on the driving simulator. Okay, so enough cheap shots here. The point is this, ethics deals with what we must do in the real world to create a personal life and a society where we thrive. So individually and also together. Ethicists think deeply about what it takes to allow all of us from the tiniest non-human creature to the breadth of human society, to the biosphere and beyond what it takes for us to flourish, to get a little bit closer to a life that reflects justice and goodness and beauty. So one of the little ethical corners of the world that I've been inhabiting the past few years and a good part of what I teach at Santa Clara is sexual ethics. Sexual ethicists ask what justice and goodness and beauty look like in the realm of human sexuality. As a field, it crosses the boundaries between what churches teach about human sexuality, how sexuality is conceived of in public life, and also the vast expanse of human sexual experience. And in asking these questions, it engages both private sexuality, but also politics and religion. So just note for a second, sex, politics, and religion. So in case you missed the memo, those are the three topics that are totally off limits at formal dinner parties. And my chosen field has led me to experience some very awkward moments in the past. Let's just say that I no longer advertise that field when I gather among polite company, and that includes especially extended family and especially my in-laws. Sorry, Mohan. Whoopsie. Sorry. There we go. Nope. Okay. I know you love that picture, so I'll go back to it. Um, but it isn't just family gatherings where sex is a taboo subject. It's also taboo in most churches. And in fact, the vast majority of my students at Santa Clara have, who have attended church in the past um, have never heard of it, heard of sex discussed there ever. It's just simply not talked about very much. But not talking about sex has very distinct problems. When we refuse to talk about this one very large part of human experience in life, we relegate it to the realm of the private behind a closed door. And while the private, the private realm can seem safer to some of us, but it's distinctly not safer to others. So the private realm is not safe, for instance, to those who've experienced abuse or stalking or other mistreatment within the safety of their own homes. The private realm is also not very welcoming to LGBTQ plus persons if their family of origin refuses to accept them or support them. And the private realm is not even very safe for those whose bodies don't match the way 
acceptable bodies are portrayed in the public media. So in other words, when all we see in the media are bodies that are young and slender and strong, it can become a source of private embarrassment to experience oneself as old or thick or weak. So relegating talk about human sexuality to the private realm is not a good thing. It too often translates into shame, poor self-concept or anxiety. So that's the sex part. Now let's talk for a second about the religion and politics part. In the days described in the Bible, mostly these topics were not as separate as they tend to be for us today. Religion and politics were part of a whole so social cloth, sort of like the warp and the weft of daily life. And in those days, this showed up partly by religious belief dictating strict boundaries, who was in and who was out, who was clean and who was unclean, who was allowed to stay at the table and who had to leave. There were rules and rules had to be followed. One of the ways that these separations or these rules showed up was in the concept of purity. In the text from Mark that we just heard, some of Jesus's followers were condemned by the Pharisees for eating with defiled or unwashed hands. And purity understood that way was a major or maybe even the major way that ancient society was structured. Who's in and who's out? Who's following the rules of the tradition and who's not? Who's worthy of a seat at the table and who should be left outside? But purity shows up in the modern world too, although in very different ways. Sexual purity is what's symbolized in the whiteness of a bride's wedding dress, including her virginity and by association, her cleanliness. In some communities, even well-educated ones, girls are encouraged to attend purity balls or wear purity rings given to them by their fathers in adolescence and relinquished to their husbands on their wedding day. But venerating purity also happens in non-sexual ways. For instance, in equating physical health with bodily sterility or in the expectation of perfect straight A grade point averages. Purity can even show up when we expect a person to have perfect politics, politics usually that conform to our own, who's in and who's out, who is worthy of a seat at the table and who isn't. Purity demands that we not deviate, that we not make mistakes, that we keep our views, not to mention our persons, undefiled by messiness and anything less than pure perfection. Purity demands that we follow the rules and further that doing so will somehow make us more worthy. And this is really crucial, closer to God. 
So exactly what is wrong with holding up purity as a standard in those ways? So there are, I, I think there are a few problems. Here's the first one. Purity is actually pretty boring. When it comes down to it, purity functions to invite us into a very small, very sterile box. It dissuades us from being messy, from being imperfect or creative or unique. If purity means conforming oneself to a narrow social standard, then retaining one's purity essentially prevents us from growing, from learning, from developing. Purity tempts us to think that there's only one right way of doing things and we had better get on board with it. So that's the first problem. Second problem is this. Purity, at least understood in this way as keeping oneself free from external defilement is actually not the pathway to happy and fruitful life at all. So to give just a few modern examples, Although we might think that bodily health is uh, being sterile and pure and free of nasty bacteria, newer science has proven that without good bacteria, we would be unable to live a healthy life at all. And in the realm of academic achievement, it's becoming increasingly clear that viewing straight A's or a perfect transcript as the sole measure of academic success leads not to success or even happiness in life, but rather it ought too often to a kind of a crippling anxiety and a distinct lack of intellectual curiosity and risk-taking. And finally, to return to the sexual realm, the idea of heterosexual purity culture can funnel a person into leading a truncated, fearful, and most importantly, inauthentic life. A life that belies the real complicated beauty of who a person truly is, just so that that person can appear to be following society's rules. So to sum up, here's where we are. Back in biblical times, a life that belies the, uh, sorry, <laughs> back in biblical times, the concept of purity understood as following the rules in order to, give, to keep oneself as undefiled was a really big thing. And it's kind of a big thing today, although it obviously takes a different shape. But what did Jesus have to say about it? How did Jesus respond when the Pharisees criticized his disciples for eating with defiled and thus impure hands. Jesus said this to the Pharisees, you hypocrites, you hypocrites, you abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. And he said to the people, listen to me, there's nothing outside a person that by going in can defile. It's the things that come out that defile. For it's from within the human heart that evil intentions come. That's what defiles a person. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying that it's the quality of your heart and the actions that come from it, the actions that come from it that matter. 
He's saying that what matters isn't how you conform to society's rules, but rather how honestly and kindly and justly you treat each other. That is what makes a person good. Most importantly, Jesus is rejecting the boundaries that humans erect to keep us separate and divided from one another. Instead, urging us to live in a way that honors ourselves and one another. And I would extrapolate the planet on which we live and the creatures with whom we share it. That's purity the way Jesus would have it. Not keeping ourselves apart, separate, perfect, pristine, but rather engaging respectfully and kindly with each other in the messy, authentic, beautiful work of life. So a good ethicist never leaves an idea on the table without spinning out at least a few concrete implications. So what would this form of purity look like today? First, I'm gonna to return to the sexual realm. It means honoring the truths that make each of us the beautiful creatures that we are. Our messy, gorgeous, awkward selves. Rather than expecting each of us to conform to some public image of what it means to be perfect, to follow society's rules, let's focus instead on treating each other with respect and kindness and authenticity in the sexual realm, like every other realm of life. Let's focus on inviting one another to be honestly the creatures whom God created us to be, even when that doesn't look much like the people lifted up in the media, the people with so-called perfect bodies or who conform to a very narrow and heterosexist understanding of what it means to love another human being. Second, in the realm of politics. Let's dump the expectation that we all must subscribe to a very restricted interpretation of one right way to think about our public life. The truth is we are all people in process. We are all messy and we are all bumbling our way forward. Don't get me wrong, I am not saying that we shy away from seeking the good, from doing justice and loving kindness, including especially in the realm of politics. But Micah's call also includes the very important urging to resist arrogance. Walk humbly with your God. Part of what it means is that we cannot flourish, all of us, when we put up fences and boundaries between us, believing that those on our side of the fence are good and pure and demonizing everyone on the other side of the fence. Instead, let's recognize that we are all complicated and let's bumble our way forward together in this very messy human life. So I would like to end with a reading, which is also from the lectionary today, from the Song of Songs. This is the most brazenly sexual book in the Bible, lifting up human sexuality for the beautiful experiences that it can engender. 
But the book doesn't emphasize purity at all, nor does it relegate sex to the private realm or narrowly dictate the shape that sex should take. Instead, the song highlights the wonderfully fruitful, thriving society towards which human sexuality can point us, where we are all invited to participate in God's creation fully and authentically. Here's how the poem reads, so you can listen for its word to you. The voice of my beloved, look, he comes leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved speaks and says to me, arise my love, my fair one and come away. For now the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. The fig tree puts forth its figs and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Let us pray. Loving, fruitful, and creative God. Help us all to feel the invitation this morning to come away into a new world, a verdant one marked not by fences and barriers, but rather by the messy, wonderful beauty of your creation. Help us not to seek separation from the complexities of the world, but rather to dive in with both feet. And most of all, help us to remember every single day as we muddle through that you light up the pathway before us so that our steps may be honest and authentic, not perfect or pure by society standards, but truly seeking to reflect justice and kindness and humbleness before you. Amen.